Good morning, everybody. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask this morning that, that you would speak and use your word in my life to uh, draw me closer to you. And I ask that you would do that same thing for these, my friends, here this morning. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. In the year 1802, Napoleon Bonaparte was approached with the idea of building a tunnel across the English Channel to connect France and Britain. Now, technology had not yet advanced enough to even seriously consider the endeavor yet, but in the fullness of time, uh, significant tech advances were made, and in 1986, Britain and France signed a treaty authorizing the construction of a tunnel that would connect the two countries. Over the next four years, 13,000 workers dug 95 miles of tunnel at an average depth of 150 feet below sea level at a cost of $15 billion. 29 years ago today, in fact, right at about this time, 29 years ago today, on December the 1st, 1990, as workers were digging from both sides of the channel, breakthrough occurred. French and British flags were exchanged, and they toasted one another with champagne. Now, it would take another four years for passenger service to begin in what came to be known as the channel, but a way had been made to connect two countries that had experienced major enmity throughout their history. So we begin the Advent season. I want us to look at one verse that explains how in the fullness of time, God broke through time and space to create a way that two enemies could be eternally reconciled. And then I want us to look at some of the practical implications for us today. John chapter 1, verse 14 says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We're going to look at four different phrases. We're going to ask four different questions this morning. And the first phrase is this, and the word became flesh. Question, what does that exactly mean? So the Gospel of John starts like this, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jump down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh. You understand, of course, that the Word is Jesus. Jesus is God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh. Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity, hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory, because 
At the Father's will, Jesus Christ became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later he might hang on a cross. It is the most wonderful message the world has ever heard or will ever hear. And the more you think about what God did, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is, as, is so fantastic as this truth of the Incarnation. Those words were said by a man named J.I. Packer, author, theologian, Incarnation. The theological word that, that means God appeared in the flesh. God appeared in the flesh. Now just think about this for a second. God became a man. I mean, it is mind-blowing when you actually stop to think about the fact that God became a man. And honestly, I cannot explain it. It is one of the great mysteries of our faith that we cling to wholeheartedly even when we don't fully understand it. Best I can help, you do, help to do this morning is to help you understand kind of the why behind the what, which sometimes is more important to understand the why behind the what. In a nutshell, here's the why. Our God is a holy, holy God. You know yourselves. We are sinful, sinful people. And God can have absolutely nothing to do with sin. And we could do absolutely nothing to solve this inimitable problem. Nothing. So, God took the initiative. God's character demanded restitution. Scripture says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And only blood that is perfect, untainted by sin. A holy sacrifice that would, on the one hand, turn aside the wrath of God towards sin, and on the other hand, demonstrate God's unequivocal love towards sinners. So God did. God told his people what was going to happen. But they didn't understand. He then painted a picture through the Old Testament sacrificial system. But guess what? They still didn't understand. So he sent prophetic messengers. They still didn't understand. So finally, finally, he sent his son to be the once and for all sacrifice that our sinfulness demanded. And then everything that God had been saying began to make sense. It's kind of like this. I love to travel. I've had the opportunity to go to a lot of places in my life, but one of the most beautiful places is Switzerland. Anybody in here ever been to Switzerland? All right. All right. So I could tell you that in nature there is nothing as gorgeous and as beautiful and as majestic as the Swiss Alps. And you may or may not 
believe that this is true. I could even show you a stunning picture of the Alps. And you may or may not, after looking at that picture, believe that it was true. I could get other people to tell you that this is indeed the most beautiful place that they have ever seen. And you still may or may not believe it. But if I took you there and you saw it for yourself, you would begin to understand. There's nothing as gloriously majestic as the Swiss Alps. Tom, is that true? That is true. Tom, it, is, it, is a, it is an unbelievable, glorious place to see. But that's what, that's what God did in Jesus. He sent his son so that we could begin to understand for ourselves the incarnation. God in the flesh. In John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus tells Philip, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The Word became flesh to reveal God to men. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son to redeem those who were under the law. 1 John 3, 8, Scripture says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. So why did the word have to become flesh? Number one, God had to break through our stubborn, willfully disobedient, uncomprehending mind so that we could understand our need for a reconciler. Number two, God had to break through the legalistic change that kept us thinking that somehow we could save ourselves. Number three, God had to break through the thick walls of our pride and self-sufficiency and egotism and racism and unforgiveness and envy and idolatry that the evil one had erected to separate us from God. The Word became flesh. Praise God that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, some translations say tabernacled among us, pitched his tent among us. Eugene Peterson says it this way, he moved into our neighborhood. I like that. I like that. He moved into our neighborhood. But here's the question. So what? So what? So John is alluding back to the Older Testament days when the Israelites were wandering around in the wilderness and the Lord camped in the midst of them. Now, you might remember that a mobile tabernacle was set up, a wooden structure that had a tent set over the top, and the glory of the Lord filled that tabernacle. And whenever God's Shekinah glory lifted and moved, the Israelite camp would follow suit. Exodus chapter 40 says this, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. All right, so finally, people of Israel settle in 
the land of Israel. And in the days of Solomon, late 900s B.C., a temple was built in Jerusalem, and this was where God took up residence. His glory filled the temple. Now, fast forward 400 years to the Babylonian captivity and the destruction of that temple. Ezekiel records in chapter 10 that the glory of the Lord departed the temple. Fast forward another 500 years, and the glory of the Lord reappeared in the person of Jesus. God again dwelt among men. God moved back into their neighborhood. God incarnate. He dwelt among us. So what? So it was a reminder that God had not abandoned his people. It was a reminder that he is still with us. It was a reminder that he still, like with the Israelites, still directs our steps. It was a reminder that we are called to incarnate the gospel. That we are called to flesh out who Jesus is to a hopeless and despairing world. That we are called to be on mission. It was a reminder that the word of God is powerful enough to break through any sin, any situation that you might be dealing with, that I might be dealing with. Back in 1971, astronaut James Irwin, who was one of the few men to walk on the moon, he served as the Apollo Lunar Module Pilot for Apollo 15. He was the eighth person to walk on the moon, and as he stood upon the lunar landscape and looked up at the earth, he prayed for the first time in his life. He thought about the wars among nations, the poverty, the hunger, the rampant evil, and he thought to himself, what is more important than man walking on the moon is that God should walk on earth. Irwin had been raised in a Christian home, but he stopped actively, actively practicing his faith when he was 10 years old. But he became a devout, born-again follower of Jesus after returning from space. It changed his life. Changed his life after the realization that God had descended from the heavens and dwelt among us, that he had moved into our neighborhood. He dwelt among us. Praise God that he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father. All right, here's the question. How, how does that apply to us? A few examples from Scripture about the people who saw the Lord's glory. These will not be unfamiliar. Moses, back in Exodus chapter 33, said, Lord, show me your glory. And the Scripture says, 
And he said, I, and the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. A few verses later, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Literally, his whole countenance changed. His whole countenance changed. His face was shining. Here's the question that I have to ask myself, and I'll ask you guys the same question. When we have been in the presence of God, does it affect our countenance? Shouldn't it affect our countenance? Remember, Pastor Don used to talk about gloomy Gus, you know? Y'all remember gloomy Gus? You know, spends time in the Word of God, but he's still gloomy Gus. You would never know by looking at his face that he was a believer in Jesus Christ. But it ought to affect our countenance when we have been in the presence of the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 6, Scripture says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah was completely undone. But then, God asks for a volunteer. And you know what Isaiah's reaction was when he was completely undone? He said, pick me, pick me! Pick me! Choose me! That's the way it affected him. He had been in the presence of God and whatever the Lord wanted him to do, ooh, I'm your man. Shouldn't being in the presence of God cause us to want to just do whatever he tells us to do? Whatever he tells us to do? Luke chapter 2, the shepherds, familiar story, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. First filled with fear, but told to go find the babe. And when they obeyed, despite their fear... Verse 20 says, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. Look, we live, we live in a world where there is much fear, even among the people of God. But shouldn't being in the presence of God alleviate those fears? Now here's a question. Is it possible? I mean, we're talking about Moses, after all. We're talking about Isaiah. We're talking about the shepherds. But is it possible? Is it possible that people like you and me can encounter the glory of God for ourselves? 
Answer is yes. Here's what 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 18 says. And we all, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, writing to us. He says, and we all, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. You cannot encounter the Lord in His glory. You cannot be in His presence and not be changed. You can't. So how, how, how do we see, how do we behold the glory of the Lord? How do we experience God's presence in a way that changes us? All right, so every pastor hopes that you will remember everything that they say. Now, I am not so naive as to believe that that actually happens. So if you remember nothing else this morning, I want you to remember three words, these next three words. You might even write them down, okay? I find that in my 61-year-old mind that I forget things. Maybe you forget things too. So you might even want to write these things down, three words. The first word is this, look. This is what Moses did. He looked. He, he asked God. To sh- he, he said, Lord, show me your glory. I want to see it. Maybe, maybe we need to, to actually ask that the Lord would reveal himself to us in a way that will change us. We, we need look. Lord, would you indeed show me your glory? Start by looking for it. Second word, listen. Isaiah chapter 6, this is what Isaiah said, and I heard the voice of the Lord. So as you have your Bible open, as you are working your way, reading through Scripture, you're not just going through the motions of checking off that passage of of Bible reading for the day, but you are actually listening, you're paying attention. You are, what's the word? Pondering. What the scripture says. You're listening intently because you want to hear what the word of God says. Because you remember what happened with Isaiah. When he heard the voice of the Lord, he was changed. The whole trajectory of his life changed. Look and listen. Third word is this. Probably the most important word. Linger. You're not just having a quiet time so that you can say you've had a quiet time. You are spending time in the Word of God so that you can be in the presence of God. And that's not a quick in and a quick out. Sometimes we need to linger and listen and ask the Lord to show us His glory as we are just basking in the quietness of his presence. You know, we live such hurried lives that rarely do we take the time to linger in the presence of God. Pastor and author John Ortberg once asked a mentor of his what he should do if he wanted to grow closer to God. All right, so so do you want to grow closer to God? All right, do you want to grow closer to God? Here's the answer that John Ortberg got ruthlessly eliminate all hurry from your life 
ruthlessly eliminate all hurry from your life. So how about if we just start by eliminating some of the hurry from our lives so that we can linger in the presence of God a little bit longer. Perhaps if we were to take the time to look and to listen and to linger, maybe, just maybe, the Lord would break through the hardness of our hearts and we might be changed. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. But then this last phrase, full of grace and truth. See, Jesus was a man of perfect balance. When people needed grace, He gave them grace. When people needed to hear the truth, they got the truth. Full of grace. Let's talk about that for just a second. Grace always carries with it the idea of something completely undeserved. So, a lot of you know my story. I did not grow up in a Christian home. As a high school student, I was not a bad kid, as our culture judges that kind of thing, but I was far, far away from God. But through a series of circumstances orchestrated by God, I was introduced to the gospel. God broke through my selfishness. He helped me to understand grace. He rescued me from a life of darkness and despair, and it was completely undeserved. I know a lot of you guys have stories like that where God has done the same thing in your life, stories that need to be shared with other people, how how we have experienced new life, undeserved, hope, undeserved, joy that was undeserved, eternal family, undeserved, favor with God, undeserved, grace, undeserved. Deserved. Jesus was full of grace. But he was also full of truth. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus is talking with his disciples and he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus embodied Truth. Truth, you understand, is what sets us free. Jesus said, If you abide in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Truth emancipates us from our fears. So I don't know if you guys know it or not, but I spent about seven weeks in pain recently. So... I started having some pain in the core muscles of my abdomen. And it kind of scared me. I didn't know, I mean, it wasn't like it just went away after a day or so, but about every four hours they would, it was, the only word that I had to describe them was is my muscles were just angry at me. They would just start throbbing in intense pain. And so I, I finally, after a couple of weeks of, waiting for it to go away and it not going away. I went to go see my doctor and he said, 
let's get an x-ray. So got an x-ray. X-ray revealed nothing. He said, all right, uh, it, it may be having something to do with your spine as it's radiating around to the front. So we got an MRI. Now, you guys realize none of this stuff is cheap, right? So <clears throat> got an MRI. <clears throat> The, the, the doctor who read the MRI said, I don't think it's coming from your spine. I don't think it has to do with that. So, so my doctor said, well, we want to eliminate anything serious. Because, you know, a lot of times when there's really serious stuff going on, it can affect, you know, cause pain in that part of your body. So he said, we want to eliminate, make sure there's nothing serious going on. So I went for a CAT scan. Again, this stuff is not cheap. I promise you. All right, went for a CAT scan. Looked at the CAT scan. There is nothing there. So he sent me to one specialist. And then he sent me to another specialist. All of the doctors were just befuddled. They had no idea what was going on. All the time, I'm sitting there going, you know, there's a lot of, I'm scared, you know. Because um, I just, that uncertainty when you don't know, you know, it's, it's scary. Meanwhile, the doctor has put me on Vicodin, all right? <laughs> so the Vicodin is taking care of some of the pain. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. The Vicodin is taking care of some of the pain. Um, and so I'm able, I'm able to, you know, continue to work and, and whatnot. Um, but I don't like being on Vicodin. I was on Vicodin for about five or six weeks. And... <clears throat> began to think that some of the pain was starting to dissipate. And so I started, you know, going longer and longer between the Vicodin pills. And, and finally, I got to the point where I felt like the pain was gone. So I came off of the Vicodin. Have you ever come off of Vicodin? <laughs> Who knew that there were withdrawal symptoms from coming off of Vicodin? I'd never been on it before. So, but magically, the pain was gone. So I, I, I sent my, my doctor a note, and I self-diagnosed, okay? And, uh, and I said, here's what I think happened. And uh, he, said, he wrote back, and he said, yeah, I think you might be right. So the day before I started having the pain, I didn't tell you this part. The day before I started having the pain, <clears throat> I went out and played ultimate frisbee with a bunch of 20-somethings, okay? Now, I'm 61 years old. You would think that I would know better, all right? You know, running and jumping and die, you know, you would think that I would know better, but no, but no. So I finally wrote and I said, I, I think what happened is I had some micro tears in the muscles of my abdomen, and it just took seven weeks for these things to heal. And he said, I think you're right. And I've got no pain anymore. So I'm all good. Good to go. And I'm off the Vicodin withdrawals now. So <laughs> we're good. But <clears throat> knowing the truth, you know, in retrospect, would have really helped me a lot, you know, in those early weeks when I'm like, you know, something really going on inside my gut. Um, truth emancipates us from our Years. Here's the other thing about truth. Truth can be disbelieved. See, there's two main reasons why people disbelieve the truth. Because it seems too good to be true, 
are because they're so fastened to their half-truths that they won't let those half-truths go. And in many instances, a half-truth is the worst enemy of the whole truth. For example, Satan is the master of the half-truth. Now here's some half-truths that our Christian culture has bought into. God wants you to be happy. Now that is true to a point. God does indeed want you to be happy. But our culture has led us to believe that happiness is found by having stuff and by following our heart and by doing whatever we please. But there's another half to it. God wants us to be happy. And genuine, lasting happiness is found only in an abiding walk with Jesus who nourishes our soul with joy and a deep-rooted satisfaction. Half-truth. If you just repeat this sinner's prayer, you'll be saved. It's a half-truth. It's true to a point. But see, we've created this easy believism that Satan has encouraged that says all you have to do is just repeat this prayer and you are good to go with God for the rest of your life. But there's another whole half to it. Just re repeat this sinner's prayer and you will be saved if it reflects a genuine trust in what Jesus did on the cross to rescue you from certain death and damnation. Another half-truth. God accepts you just the way you are. That's a half-truth. It is true to a point. Our culture, though, has bought into this half-truth that you can choose any lifestyle or live any way that you want to, and God accepts you. The other half is often left out. God accepts you just the way that you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. Okay, let's, let's land this plane. Let me wrap up by just asking you a few questions. Okay, the word became flesh. Are you in awe of the extent that God has gone to to save you from your sins and to keep you from experiencing the wrath of a holy God? The Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. Do you understand the implications of this staggering truth that He still dwells among us? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Do you want to encounter the glory of God for yourself do you want to experience his presence in a way that will profoundly change you? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Are you willing to let go of the half-truths that you've been holding on to and embrace the complete truth that the word became flesh. 2,000 years ago, God broke through time and space. But in the fullness of time, perhaps today, is when God wants to break through whatever it is that is keeping you from finally understanding the astonishing, mind-blowing <laughs> ramifications of this great truth that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory 
as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this staggering verse. Thank you that you, in the fullness of time, came, appeared, rescued us when we were so undeserving and we're so grateful for the fact that you did not abandon us but that you loved us with an everlasting love and continue to woo us to yourself. Thank you for this great reminder. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.